Good morning. It is Joe Moran with the Joe Moran Show. Excited to be here as always. Wonderful Thursday morning. 70 degrees. Slight chill, but nice. Ready to get going. Uh, We got an excellent show lined up today with interesting talking points that I'm just ready to dive into. Um, You know, there's just, there's just, there's, there's news, there's bombs, there's not literally, but uh, news bombs, right, that drop every single day. And you kind of overlay the political scene with uh, the economy and how that looks. And it's just a, it's a very unique, uh, unique time, right? And it provides opportunities for us to get smarter, have better discussions on a daily basis. So, Super excited to dive in uh, to the conversation today and see where it takes us. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Trump. Um, we just can't we just can't get away from Trump. But we're gonna talk about Trump and some comments that he made yesterday regarding uh, peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election. So we're gonna talk about that. Uh, I want to get into the feedback from various senators, um, a moderate, what would be considered a moderate senator, and then the Republican, kind of Republican Republican senator's response is to Trump's comments. So I want to dive into that. Uh, I want to talk about the market sell-off yesterday. Um, it was even down significantly today before the dollar started to revert. Uh, I want to talk about that. What's happening on the digital asset front, um, whether it's the ECB, the Fed, um, as well as Venezuela and Gemini. Uh, I want to want to talk about that just because, again, you know, you have these worlds that are colliding, right? You have the macroeconomic world and the crypto world and they're colliding so it's important for us to keep those conversations going um, so i want to talk about i want to talk about some news there and then um, wrap it up with some information on just kind of economic progress as we try to dig ourselves out from this hole this covid 19 hell if you will um, i want to talk about that and we've got some interesting data on housing as well as airlines. And I think the airline data gives us a glimpse into behavioral changes that likely aren't going to go away, um, at least anytime soon. So that's today's show. It's fully loaded. Ready to get started uh, because there's too many things right now that are going on in the world that impact all Americans, right? I was actually listening to a podcast earlier today, and one of the individuals said that the surface area 
of the president. So really, and, and, and what this individual was describing was, you know, what's the impact that the president plays on everyday lives? And this individual was saying that the impact, the surface area is how he described it, is becoming less and less, right? Really since the 1970s. And I think that's true. But what I would say is the centralized institutions... So the federal government, the president, Congress, Supreme Court, the centralized institutions have less of a impact on everyday lives. Um, and the president is just a natural um, pillar. Essentially, it's one institution, right, whose power has been diminished over time. Uh, but it's just it's just one lever, right, of many centralized institutions that have seen their influence wane over the past 50 years. So um, interesting, interesting uh, comments, but it's this time. And where I will, you know, dispute it is, you know, right now, there are a lot of things and a lot of decisions that are being made by the president, by Congress. We have future decisions that will be made by the Supreme Court relative to Roe v. Wade and um, the ACA or Obamacare that do have direct impact on our lives. So right now, it's just a critical time and... Yes, again, I agree conceptually, and actually I agree 100%, right, that, I mean, we've talked about it, that the power of centralized institutions is diminishing, right, because we're in the information age, we've got technology, um, we've seen from the COVID response that centralized actors or centralized um, players in this game called life failed right um and so you know i think that's true overall in terms of the general trend and where things will continue to go but the players right now are impacting us as individuals as citizens um and you know there really isn't a more critical time um in my lifetime than i would say right now in terms of the overall direction their overall direction of the economy as well as you know, national security, um, healthcare. I mean, it's all on the table. It's all on the table right now, and that's why we cover it all. That's why we talk about it, and that's why we try to get better, try to get smarter, um, try to be intellectually honest, right? Uh, because far too often, people are just having bad takes and strong takes and whatever else. But there's intellectual dishonesty in how they position things, and we're just not gonna we're not gonna go down that route here. Um, but I really want to dive in first and foremost because it is the most important thing, and and I will probably even get into polling a little bit. Uh, but Trump 
during his press conference last night. You know, and he, he, he has these daily press conferences because he, he thinks it helps him control the narrative, right? He can control the narrative in the media um, by having these press conferences. You know, the reason why he stopped the press conferences during COVID was because he started saying crazy things like drink bleach and it became a net negative for him, right? It became a net negative and that's when they stopped. So he's come back, he's back, you know, he wants to be in control of his own destiny and he is, uh, he's back. So good for media, gives us something to talk about. Bad for the Republic, <laughs> bad for democracy. Um, so last night, somebody asked him about, you know, will you commit to a peaceful transfer of power should you lose? Simple question. Should have been an easy answer. Should be an easy answer for anybody that believes in democracy, believes in the Constitution believes in the American um, dream, American exceptionalism, believes in the institutions in this country, it should have been an easy response. Even if you don't believe it, right? Even if, even if you're like, well, fuck democracy, I want to be an authoritarian, Fuck the Constitution. I want to be an authoritarian. The response <laughs> should have been an easy response, right? It should have been, yes, I commit to a peaceful transfer of power. Even if you're not going to do it um, or you're going to fight like hell to hold on to power for a variety of reasons, which we can only surmise is uh, grift and illegal activities, but should have been an easy response. For Trump, it was a layup question, a fair question, fair question, hundred percent. I mean, I'm glad it, I'm glad we're talking about it, but it should have been a layup. But Trump, in his uh, infinite uh, stupidity, depending on how you look at it, said, "No, I won't commit to a peaceful transfer of power." Because, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially said, you know, there's a huge problem with the ballots. I don't trust the ballots. And he went on to say, he goes, you know, if we give, if we basically eliminate the ballots, get rid of the ballots, then we'll have a continuation <laughs> of this, right? And he was talking about his administration and that's scary, right? Eliminating the ballots? Getting rid of the ballots? He didn't talk about mail ballots. He didn't talk about mail voting, which doesn't matter what he says. There is not mail fraud that happens with voting. Um, it doesn't happen, but he didn't talk about that. He didn't say mail voting, we got to count all the votes, if the results are clear, then yeah, I commit to a peaceful transfer of power. He didn't say that. 
He said all the ballots are bad. I mean, essentially, he's saying that voting and giving people a voice in their democracy is bad. That's what he said. Um, and, you know, it's funny, not really funny, it's sad and scary and whatever else, that he's, he's said things like this consistently, consistently. Over the past, you know, three plus years. And, you know, what happens is when he actually tears down our, our institutions, our centralized institutions, and makes them weaker, it actually, um, you know, the response from the Republicans have just been like, you know what, he's not serious. You can't take it serious. You just laugh it off. I can't control what he says. Um, they don't actually defend the Constitution or the institutions. They say, oh, I'm not going to get get in this kind of gotcha politic game, gotcha statement game. Right? We don't hear those. We don't hear um, the senators and the Congress and the Congress, uh, the congressmen Congress people, men and women, we don't hear them defending the Constitution. We haven't for three plus years. And so the statements by Trump have gotten just further and further and further and further towards authoritarianism because nobody's sticking up to him. His own party won't stand up to him. Why is that? Why can't they stand up for the Constitution? They're in their position to uphold the Constitution. That's it. That's it. And when you have a president that denigrates the Constitution, that doesn't understand what it means, what it stands for, We've got a real issue. Real issue. And it shouldn't matter what side of the party line that you fall on. Because this, is, this isn't about politics, right? It's not about politics. It's bigger than politics. It's, a bigger, it's bigger than party ideologies it's bigger than the future or each party's vision, right, um, for the future of this country. It's bigger than any one individual's um, ability to hold power, to grasp power. It's about democracy democratic ideals America not being an authoritarianism an authoritarian country that's what it's about should be pretty easy for these senators and these congress people to stand up to somebody 
and say absolutely not. Absolutely not. But most of them won't do that. And the problem is, the problem is, they've kowtowed to him. They've kowtowed to Trump for so long that they need the Trump voter, right? They need the cult of Trump to get them reelected. That's why they don't do it, because they want to be reelected. And so they're trapped, right? I mean, that's what happens when you get authoritarian in place, right? They poison the well. They start getting you involved, right, in some of the shifty things that they're doing. You don't want to get in trouble. They create a cult-like following, right? And it's typically a minority. And the people that can actually stop the authoritarian are no longer incentivized to stop them because they rely on the vote to stay in power that keeps the, that individual in power. And that's where we're at. I mean, Trump's going all in. He's going all in. And there's actually polling data out that suggests this is a winning strategy for Trump. Because the more that he talks about stealing the election or going to the Supreme Court, challenging the results, and it creates this fear and anxiety in people that actually care, right, about having a democracy, that it actually turns them off from voting and it turns them off from the political process. So they cannot vote. And that's what Trump wants. He wants them to not vote. And frankly, it doesn't matter. He still thinks he won the popular vote in 2016. He lost by a few million votes, <laughs> and he thinks he won. So, you know, he it, it's 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 unconscionable what's happening, unconscionable. But I want to dive in to some of the comments and the reactions from these senators because it's important to note who they are, what they're saying, what our reaction is, and we need to hold them accountable for their actions. So we'll start with McConnell about an hour ago. He sends out a tweet and he says the winner of the November 3rd election will be inaugurated on January 20th. There will be an orderly transition just as there have been every four years since 1792. Pretty straightforward. No BS. Um, okay, great. Great. Let's make it happen. He doesn't talk about, you know, does it go to the Supreme Court? Is there a contested election? Why is there going to be a contested election? I mean, we're already saying like it's a certainty. I don't understand it. 2000 was a contested election because we had hanging fucking chads. And Florida was decided by thousands, like like, like almost no votes. Right? The Dems won the popular vote, but it came down to Florida. 
And the difference between Bush and Al Gore, it was minimal, right? And there were hanging chads. And the voting machines screwed up. And so it was a contested election. Okay? Get it. Understand it. We got Ted Cruz talking about a contested election like it's a foregone conclusion. Why is it a foregone conclusion? If Biden wins by 5 million votes on the popular, crushes on the electoral college, is there really going to be a contested election? I mean, we know Trump is going to kick his feet and scream, and he's going to contest it. We know that, right? And that's why these responses are so important. Because what happens if that's the case, right? We wake up on November 4th. Biden won Florida. Biden is up and won Michigan. And it's basically over, right? And Trump says, no, 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 no. I'm going to contest. I'm going to contest. Voting fraud, mail fraud, right? We know that's what he's going to do, right? It doesn't matter. We know that's what he's going to do. He's going to claim victory. And he's going to say all this bullshit, right? And are the senators, are the people in his own party going to stand up for the Constitution and challenge Trump? Because that's what's going to be required. That's what's going to be required if that's the scenario. So McConnell says, hey, look, the winner of the election, there will be a peaceful and orderly transition. Okay. Great. Ben Sass, this coward out of Nebraska, the president says crazy stuff. We always had a peaceful transition of power. It's not going to change. Huh. <laughs> Well, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Does it make you feel warm and fuzzy? President says crazy stuff. It's crazy. It's crazy stuff. He's been saying this stuff for three plus years. He believes it. It doesn't matter if nobody else believes it. He believes it. And he's going to do whatever is necessary to stay in power. So Ben, on November 4th, are you going to come out and say, look, Biden won. We need to have a peaceful transfer of power. Are you going to say that? Because that's what's going to be required. No more crazy stuff. No more crazy talk. Trump knows exactly what he's doing. Make no mistake about it. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it's going to take people like Ben Sass
<laughs> unfortunately, it's gonna we we gotta rely on this guy. We got to rely on this guy to stand up for the Constitution. Let's go to Romney. So Romney, last night, tweets out, Fundamental to democracy is the peaceful transition of power. Without that, there is Belarus. Any suggestion that a president might not respect the constitutional guarantee is both unthinkable and unacceptable. Okay, great. Seems relatively positive. Yet, you're supporting Trump's ability to nominate and put a vote on the floor of the Senate for Supreme Court justice. That could potentially tilt the election in his way. Because they feel obligated to vote for to to vote in Trump's favor because he gave them their position of power. So Romney, we're going to need to rely on you. November 4th. Are you going to stand up for the Constitution? Are you going to defend the Constitution? Are you man enough to defend the Constitution? We'll find out. We'll find out. Let's go to Rubio. Our old man Rubio. This guy has no backbone. Is the coward of cowards in the Senate. So let's hear what Rubio has to say. This was at 6.46 a.m. this morning. As we have done for two centuries, we will have a legitimate and fair election. It may take longer than usual to know the outcome, but it'll be a valid one. And at noon on January 20th, we'll peacefully swear in the president. Hmm. Let's, let's look at this. Okay. Yes, we've had legitimate and fair elections for two centuries. Correct. It may take longer than usual to know the outcome. Why is it going to take longer than usual to know the outcome? Hmm? There's been one election in my lifetime that was contested. One. And that's because the margin was, you know, a few thousand votes. Right? In one county. Or a couple counties in Florida. And there were hanging chats. <laughs> I mean, what are we talking about? If Biden wins this thing and it's a fucking blowout, and Rubio is sitting there saying, well, it may take longer than usual to know the outcome, and he supports. A contested election. The reality with Rubio is his stance is no stance. It 
It's like in the play Hamilton, right? Alexander Hamilton takes strong positions, bold strokes, bold folks. And then you've got Aaron Burr, who takes no position at all. Never does. Doesn't want people to know what he's thinking. That's Rubio. Well, the difference is Rubio tells us, he just tells us that he constantly stands for nothing. And at noon on January 20th, we will peacefully swear in the president. So is he already saying that Trump's going to win? I mean, let's, 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 let's go back to Trump's comments. Get rid of the ballots. Get rid of all the ballots and you'll have a peaceful, you'll have a peaceful, well, there won't be a transfer. Frankly, there'll be a continuation. The ballots are out of control. You know it and you know who knows it better than anyone else. The Democrats know it better than anyone else. Unbelievable. And Rubio reinforces it. It may take longer than usual to know the outcome, but it'll be a valid one. And at noon, we'll peacefully swear in the president. The way I read that last sentence is, is Rubio thinks it's a foregone conclusion. Thinks it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, these are the people that we elected. These are the people that we're relying on to uphold and defend the Constitution. Sass, Romney, Rubio, Susan Collins. Susan Collins is just going to say, well, it's pretty unfortunate. And I'm sure Trump learned his lesson. Has he learned his lesson? Senator Collins? Has he learned his lesson? Please tell me. Has he learned it? Do these comments last night tell you that he's learned his lesson? I'm anxiously waiting your response. Anxiously waiting. Now, we got Manchin, right? So a moderate uh, Democrat, sometimes votes Republican, certainly has Republican friends um, and allies across the aisle. But he's a Democrat, right? West Virginian Democrat. So, you know, to be a senator and to be a Democratic senator in that state, you've got to hold some positions, right, that um, cross both aisles. You have to. So what's Manchin's response? I'd hope this wake up some of my Republican colleagues, even if you lose. How in the world can you face yourself in the morning? Here's a person who wants total authoritarianism. It's not who we are. Please, for the sake of our country, for the sake of our children and future generations... Please protect this great republic of ours. Manchin, he understands the sense of urgency. 
he understands the sense of urgency. And that's the problem, right? I mean, that's one of the problems that the Democrats um, have had. And frankly, they've miscalculated for the past 20 years that they've been playing the game by the book, right? Under an old set of rules where decency matters, doing the right thing matters, constitution matters. Now, they still make plays, right, for political power, but I don't think they play the same game that McConnell plays, that Ted Cruz plays, that Lindsey Graham plays, where they're willing to sacrifice... They're willing to sacrifice democracy for power. And these senators, they're the ones that we're going to have to rely on November 4th. I'm hopeful that Manchin, given his comments, understands the sense of urgency. And frankly, this needs to be a topic on the debate stage so that people can see it. I'm hopeful that Manchin does reach across the aisle over the next five, six weeks and gets Republicans to commit to a peaceful transfer of power and to be vocal about it because the democracy depends on it. There's no question that the democracy depends on it. If we have a a contested election... The country knows that it was a farce. Trump wins. I don't want to know what that looks like. Right? November 4th through November through December. I'm not interested in seeing what that outcome looks like. Because it's a bad outcome. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm hoping these senators grow a spine and are willing to stick up for the Constitution. We'll see. To be determined. To be determined. Now, while all of this is going on, right, we got the political arena, we got fucking chaos, the economy... Uh, and notably the stock market, because really that's the only thing Trump cares about. (laughs) I mean, let's just be honest. Has started to hit some roadblocks. Right? The dollar is ripping up. It's broken out of this channel that it's been in since really, let's call it the 24th of, or 27th of July through the 21st of September and where it ranged, let's call it, it just ranged between 93.65 and 91.75, right? So it was in this range over two months. Well, it's ripped out of that range. Um, and it's currently at 94.60, 
So what's happening is risk assets are going down. S&P is going down. The Nasdaq's getting crum getting crushed. The Dow's getting crushed. I mean, it's down 10%, 5 10% this month. The various stock indexes. And you know, it's hard to know what it means um kind of in the short term. You know, I went back and I looked at dollar strength from the previous election, so 2016, what happened preceding that. And, you know, something somewhat similar. We didn't have kind of the same channel form, right, from let's call it July to September. But beginning in October, let's call it, well, just October 3rd, the dollar, the DXY, I'm using the DXY, but it closed at 95.75, okay? It rose steadily over the month to end at 98. Let's see, where did it close? It closed at 98.36. So it went from 95.75 to 98.36. And then through December, so if we go all the way through December, it reached essentially a top of 103.22. January 3rd, it went to, it actually reached a high of 103.82. So right after the new year, the dollar then started to have a steady decline all the way to let's call it 88 an 88 quality a number in early 2018 so we saw a run up right post election and i think it's or pre-election and i think that makes sense i mean there's always uncertainty around an election who's going to win what does it mean for the economy will there be a peaceful transfer of power so people rush into the dollar right it's a store of value it's the reserve currency it's the global reserve currency and it's a safe haven, right, during this time. Um, and I, I think we could see something similar happen, um, just given the uncertainty around the election, you know, Trump's comments. So I think it's possible that that continues. And the question is, and the question for Trump is, well, if the dollar rises, it's going to put a tremendous amount of pressure on the various markets, on the economy. And... Does that help him, right? Does that help his chances? Well, if the stock market continues to drop running into the election, then no, it doesn't help him, right? So, you know, I don't think we're going to have fiscal. I mean, I told you, I think fiscal's done for this year um, unless Trump wins and then they decide to do something. Uh, but I think it's I think it's really off the table for now. Uh, Mansion's actually going to talk to Pelosi about maybe revisiting her stance, but 
let's say that it's off the table. If the economy starts to shutter, right, and bond yields are dropping, um, and, you know, historically bonds lead, right, the stock market and equities. So if, if the rates are dropping, then the bonds, the, the bond market's telling us something, right? And I can't imagine that that's a good answer for Trump in terms of the market. And, you know, he relies so much on the market as his kind of policy and saying that he is adding value. Well, if it keeps going backwards, then he's going to have some challenges. He's going to have some challenges. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the dollar. Um, but if I just go back to the last election cycle, like I said, it ran up, ran up hard in 16, and then it dropped. If we go back to 2012, it actually ran up, but started to come down in um, July. Now, I think the difference there is everybody thought that Obama was likely to win. Right, so I think there was less uncertainty. But if we look at what happened in 2008, so the Bush years are over, Obama McCain in June, the dollar was at <laughs> 7166, holy Toledo, and by November 3rd. Let's see, November 3rd, it closed at 86. So huge run up prior to the election. And I think we see something similar there. Um, just because the uncertainty. Now, that happens. Expect a strong reaction from the Fed because they can't keep the dollar that strong for long before there starts being some challenges internationally uh, from a strong dollar. So, you know, the response will be swift. They'll try to keep it low. Um, but I think market participants are going to be flooding the dollar. Um, and, and what that means, right, it's, it's going to put pressure on assets. It's going to put lots of pressure on assets. Crypto space, we've got some interesting things happening. Gemini is opening up their, uh, their exchange platform to the UK. Um, they're going to be accepting currency, accepting the pound, right, to make deposits, um, to buy crypto assets. So that's big. Um, again, just the overall market continues to expand. Um, the Fed is still looking at a digital dollar, right? I mean, they've been talking about it. Um, probably doesn't happen for a few years. Our, our government here moves pretty slow. 
but you know they're they're talking about it the european commission released a proposal on markets and crypto assets that is and it's a 100 pages 160 pages so they're looking at a digital currency and you know what a lot of these major kind of centralized banks when they go full digital they're going digital for one reason and one reason only right and that's to consolidate the banks you go digital dollars you can start doing helicopter money and just send it right right through a credit card or a debit card um, right to every individual you won't need local banks local banks will disappear um, and, and really it's going to put a lot of pressure on growth because local banks are the ones that give out loans, right? You're going to have a central bank that underwrites every single deal. Um, you know, right now it takes $4 a debt to create $1 growth, $1 GDP. That's what happens today. So in this future world of consolidated banks and central banks uh, wielding digital currencies, What's going to happen? You know, and honestly, the full embrace of digital currencies, crypto assets, you know, what's the impact on Bitcoin and Ethereum? And, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think it's a negative at all. I think it's a positive that the banks understand what the people are asking for in terms of the immediacy of the transaction right? Um, there's real value there by using technology to execute these types of transactions versus your traditional banking system. Uh, and then, you know, what happens is, you know, the, the, the banking systems become centralized. So you're gonna have a centralized option and a decentralized option. Which one wins in that scenario? I think the decentralized option wins, but that's where we'll get to right um and it'll be fascinating to see but a lot of things are happening in the crypto space that are bullish uh venezuela i mean it's it's a mess because it's communism but what they are doing is they are centralizing all of the mining activity so the crypto mining activity and they're creating a national mining pool and, you know, the government wants a slice of the pie, of course. Um, you know, when, when doesn't the Venezuelan uh, government want a piece of the action? But, you know, I think it's possible that this leads them to, you know, Bitcoin becoming their unit of account. I think it's possible. You know, when these countries start taking these steps... It leads you to the answer, right? It leads you to the answer. Because Venezuela, they've been squeezed, right? Because of the dollar. Whether it's through sanctions, whether it's, um, you know, oil related and what they can or can't do with selling their oil. Whether it's England saying, look, you can't have your gold bars. They're my gold bars, right? We're holding them for you, but we're not going to let you have them. 
So at some point, the Venezuelan uh, government, the communists, are going to say enough is enough and we're going to embark on a new system. And this uh, kind of national pool and the consolidation of the mining activity within Venezuela uh, could potentially be a step there. So, I mean, I think all of these things um, are ultimately bullish for Bitcoin. Um, another thing real quick to note on Bitcoin is, you know, today it's at, you know, 10425 right? Well, yeah, it's down from 12000 Shit, I wish it was at twelve five, like it was... <laughs> In August, right? Um, my personal net worth would feel a lot better if that was the case. But the the reality is, is if you compare it to where the dollar was the last time it was at this 94 kind of 60 quality number, and that was on July 24th, Bitcoin was trading anywhere from, let's call it 9,500 to... 9700 somewhere in there right and today at a similar standpoint in terms of the dollar we're trading at 10.4 so i'm up almost a thousand per bitcoin and that just shows that the impact of those dollar moves are becoming less and less as the supply of the bitcoin moves and the various coins right you know people as people hold them as it becomes more and more right as those coins get move around the uh the market they're being taken in and absorbed by people that just aren't selling and that's what's driving the price up so i think all of these things um are good for crypto, Bitcoin, etc. Um, it's just short-term pain, right? And it's a volatile, and, and you play the long game with this thing because it moves, it moves fast when it moves, and many days it's just kind of back and forth, back and forth, right? Slowly grinding its way up before it makes real moves up, and you know over the next 12, 18 months we'll see, we should see real moves, right? That's what we're all. That's what we're all hoping for, anyways. But uh, you know, these types of moves, they don't. They just. They just don't. They just don't move my needle, um, because I'm always thinking big picture. We got to think big picture here. Couple of market kind of data points that we need to talk about: new home sales up a million, so just a massive, massive number. Um, they were expecting 890,000. It came in over a million. Months supply of homes is down to 3.3. We need new homes to be built. We need them to be built for starter homes. The problem is developers don't want to develop starter homes because there's the margins not there. Right? Is these super sexy high end um, for high net worth individuals? The margins not there. And it creates a problem, right? It creates a problem. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but, you know, people are buying homes. So good news, interest rates are going to be down forever. 
right, for the foreseeable future, probably for the next five, ten years in my estimation. Um, at least it wouldn't shock me. So people are buying homes, right? They're taking on debt. They're uh, kind of moving into bigger and uh, more expensive homes because the because the interest is low. But again, you've got that kind of new entrant that's being squeezed out. They're being squeezed out, and we gotta we gotta solve for that. Um, and then the last thing that I want to wrap up with is airlines. So Zoom continues to go bonkers, right? It's its market cap is just, I mean, it's astronomical. It's bigger than all of the major airliners um, combined. And we've got news of, you know, hospitalizations doubling in England, and there's fear of a second wave of the coronavirus. And so Zoom continues to continues to go up, up, and up. Well, the airlines are really struggling year over year. Um, you know, right now you're about 30 to 40% in terms of daily flight activity compared to a year ago. And the airlines can't make it at a 30 to 40% demand from where they were a year ago. They're not going to be able to make it. And at what point is this no longer just about COVID, but it's about behavior? And that's the thing that we'll be watching is has the relative behavior of individuals changed the fact that the needs, what they demand in terms of services and goods, has it changed post-COVID in the digital world? I can just tell you that companies are not going to be flying around meeting with customers when you can jump on a Zoom call. They're just not going to do it. It's too expensive. Right? So, I think the airlines are in real trouble. Um, but again, you've got 29 million people that are on some form of governmental assistance. And the hope needs to be that while we continue to have Congress, this administration, bail out these large corporations that they provide real relief to the Americans that are struggling that are unemployed on some form of governmental assistance or filing for continuous claims and it needs to be a all hands on deck approach right to solve and to get this out of this because if it's a real behavioral change then the economy just isn't going to come back at the pace that it needs to. It's not. Can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. So take note and let's watch. Let's see what happens. Let's see if those numbers change. Yeah, people are going to go to football games, right, when they're allowed to go to football games. But are people going to fly or are they going to Zoom? I'll bet on Zoom. I'll bet on Zoom. And that's it for today. Hope everybody enjoyed today's show. And until tomorrow, 
when we're back at it with the Joe Moran Show. Let's keep our ears to the grindstone.